0: All right, here we go. Another episode of Two Man Advantage the podcast. Scott Burnside here, and Pierre Lebrun catching you just before you, you got a big you got a big hockey tournament on this weekend in uh, in in lovely Alliston, Ontario. Which I'm just told you don't know you did not know this uh, it, for a long time at least was the home of the Potato Festival in <laughs> Ontario. <laughs>
1: you, you you scare me sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> I, I did not know that. And by the way. Every weekend is her tournament weekend pretty much in my household these days. <laughs> Between my three kids, uh, it, uh, it never ends, but it's all good. I'll, I'll miss it in about 10 years when it ends, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, no, no I know exactly what you mean. And
1: I've uh, returned from Las
0: Vegas. I was in uh, Vegas uh, for a few days and uh, um, got a chance. We're going to hear from Marc-Andre Fleury later in uh, Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And, I, and here I'm... It's always such a treat to talk to Marc-Andre Fleury. And the only thing I regret is uh, I, I failed to ask him whether his wife was still mad at you and was still uh, chirping you on social media for <laughs> your uh, critical comments about the Golden Knights during the Western Conference final. Against it, it, it,
1: well, once again, you got the story wrong. It, 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 was, not, <laughs> it was not on social media. It was after, uh, I think it was after game two of the Western final. I, I had picked Winnipeg to trounce the, the Golden Knights, like most people. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I was walking back from doing a, a hit for TSN at the top of the rink or somewhere everywhere. And I was walking back in the hallway again, going back to the media room to write my column and, uh, very politely, she introduced herself. Uh, she was standing there with Alan Walsh, uh, Marc-Audrey Fleury's agent. Yeah. And, uh, and then she said, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the guy that, uh, you know, picked Winnipeg to to, to beat us so easily. That's really disappointing in you. You're, you're, you're going to be wrong just so you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, she was right, and I was wrong so uh, yeah there
0: that's you go. right that's uh, good no but it's it's always good, and it's interesting of course that uh, you know Vegas is uh, I was there for <clears throat> the first return match the first uh, time that the Washington Capitals returned to Vegas since uh, clinching the Stanley Cup in uh, in game 5 uh, and uh, it was terrific I got a chance to sit down with Nicholas Backstrom uh, and, and and John Carlson separately and uh, but it was interesting talking to Nicholas Backstrom about his you know just the chain you know how life changes after years of disappointment uh, for the Capitals and and uh, um you know, that they, they a different mindset. I think for the Capitals now they you know gone through some ups and downs as well. And now Tom Wilson was there for the the violent encounter between Ryan Reeves and Tom Wilson, and uh, so the the Capitals are a bit banged up now. Still missing T.J. Oshie as well, but uh, but seem to have found their footing. And do you like when you think about those two teams? You know, it's so hard to get back to the final. Yeah, year after year let alone winning back-to-back cups which of course pittsburgh did in uh, 16 and 17 but, but what do you think when you think of vegas and washington you know where, where do you think they're at as we approach the holiday season
1: well i'll start with the golden knights whom i shall never underestimate again thanks to my yeah. glory's wife but uh you know i think they found their sea legs here over the past month uh, it was a really tough october as you know from talking to them i i happened to run into them a few times at the start of the season and um you know, everything that sort of went their way a year ago was going against them at the start of the season. Obviously, the injuries to Paul, you know, the injury to Paul Stasch in particular, and then Eric Halla really helped derail things early on. But, uh, you know, they've played much better hockey since then. And, um, you know, I, I look at that Pacific division, and I feel like Calgary and San Jose will get in. And then it's really, you know, is it going to be Anaheim, Edmonton, or Vegas? Uh, I like Vegas' chances. Um So, yeah, I think that they're coming around. The Caps are going to win the Metro. I mean, I really do think that, again, there is a team that knew that in the first half, things will be a little more difficult. But, uh, you know, I think they've got a legitimate chance to defend the Stanley Cup champions. I think Tampa and Toronto will be my first two picks in the East. But I think Washington has a legitimate chance. Yeah,
0: no, no questions. Interesting, you mentioned Paul Stastny because he and I chatted briefly uh, before I departed Vegas. <clears throat> he's been skating pretty regularly now, and it looks like he's getting closer and closer to returning to the lineup. And <clears throat> it's—I I think it's fair to say that. You know, maybe like Washington, if you're Vegas, given your successes of last year and you know what to do and you've added a couple of veteran, um, really solid veteran players and Max, Max Pacioretty, who's been dealing with his own injury issues, uh, and Paul Stassi, it's, you know, is it really so much, you you know, you'd like to have home ice advantage because you, the, the Golden Knights play so well at home. Um, in fact, as we speak now, they're 9-3-1 and one, uh, at home in, in the seven and 7-10 on uh, on the road. So they've been, they've been pretty bad away from home, but it really doesn't matter. Do you think for a team that has that kind of experience and has added some nice veteran pieces and that really, once you get in the door, especially with, uh, with the Pacific being what it is, it, if you find your way in the door, that's really all that matters for, for this kind of team. Or do you think that's overstating it?
1: No, I, I think that's fair. And I'll forget they admit they were missing Nate Schmidt, you know, with his suspension yep. early on right. as well. So, uh, no, I, I do think they'll be there. And, um, um you know i think you know they're not a young team and they they do have young pieces coming but it's this is actually a veteran team and i think that got lost last year too during their magical run you know you look at their average age and this is a team that has experience it just so happens that the experience was gained elsewhere (laughs) before they came together as a team and uh no like i said i if I had to bet right now, I I would take Calgary, San Jose, and Vegas as the top three in the Pacific. Yeah. What you What did you
0: make of the Ryan Reeves hit on on Tom Wilson? And the, it was. You know, it was it was a severe penalty on on the ice. The Match penalty. Ryan Reeves dismissed from the game. Uh, Vegas managing to kill off a five minute power play, which really sort of turned the tide in that in that game. A game ultimately won by Vegas. And you know, Tom Wilson did not play in the Capitals' next game, uh, even though they did come up with a win. Uh, and uh, his helmet flew off. He hit his eye, head on the ice, and the you, I know the um, uh, the report seemed in uh, concussion or concussion related issues and, uh, you know, difficult to, you know, it, it's for me, it's, it, it, it sparked the ugly side of social media, which doesn't take much these days. But you know, a lot of people really, you know, seemingly pleased to see Tom Wilson heard. And uh, mm-hmm. um, I guess it just left me a little, a little cold, but I wonder what you made of the,
1: the hit and, and maybe some of
0: the commentary after Yeah,
1: I had no time for that kind of commentary. But uh, first of all, you you knew that something was going to happen because, of course, they didn't face each other the first time these two teams played this year with Tom Wilson suspended. And and this, as everyone knows, dates back to Tom Wilson's hit in Game 1 in the Stanley Cup Final and Jonathan Marchesso. Uh, No one wants to say it, but let's just be honest. (laughs) Let's not skirt around the issue, which went, by the way, without a suspension. And at the time, I was in disagreement of that. I thought Tom Wilson should have got a game in the Cup Final for that high hit on Marchesso. But it's also a hit that I think people in the Vegas organization would admit that changed the complexion of the cup final. I mean, that's the one game Vegas won, but I don't know. It, it just changed the, the way the rest of that series played out. So um, no doubt in my mind, Ryan Reeves was uh, going to look for his pound of flesh from Tom Wilson in this game, and he never, never want to see anyone get hurt. However, having said that, Uh, I I didn't think it was a suspendable offense. I mean, I'm glad he got the game game. in-game. I thought that was justified. But beyond that, I I, I didn't see a supplemental discipline myself.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. agree entirely. And, uh, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Because Wilson, you know, with some... It's so interesting, right? I mean, you know, when you think about the the suspension, and um, you know, I think it was must have been very disappointing for the lead to have a, the the arbitrator reduce the uh, the the length of the initial suspension. But uh, when Tom Wilson came back, and again with Evgeny Kuznetsov hurt, TJ Oshie hurt, you know, Tom Wilson really answered the bell offensively. He was uh, absolutely on fire as soon as he got back on the ice, and so. I think you understand, you know, whatever you think of the way he plays the game and some of the things that he has done, uh, you understand why Brian McClellan, the GM in Washington, you know, came to, um, you know, the the long term and the big dollar for Tom Wilson uh, in the off season because he's a huge he's a huge part of that team. He's he's a, he's a very unique player, and he he is an extremely important component to that team, and I would argue. Now, I was with you. I thought he should have been suspended, frankly, in the first round uh, for a hit against Columbus, um, and I want to say Wenberg, I think because my memory is a bit foggy these days. Yeah, yeah the that, that, that uh, high hit
1: in the corner there. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yes, and <clears throat> but <clears throat> I don't. I think it's fair to say they don't win the Stanley Cup without Tom Wilson, right? Because he no kills question. penalties, and he's you know that's the kind of player he is. So it'll be interesting to see how they. Uh,
1: how but it's but funny, uh, we, we had Brian McClellan on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we met, we talked about Tom yeah. Wilson. And, and um, you know, part of what Brian McClellan very honestly shared with us is that he wasn't exactly sure anymore about some of the criteria with player safety. You know, he they're, they're trying to get Tom Wilson to play within the lines, but they're confused themselves as an organization as to the do's and don'ts. And I, I, I guess this... Incident with Ryan Reeves would probably exacerbate that. I'm sure for them.
0: Yeah, no question. And it, it is hard. It's yeah, you, you know. The, and he he talked about it, but the hit on T.J. Oshi, <clears throat> very similar to an earlier hit on um, Patterson from Vancouver, that cost Mike Matheson in terms of a suspension, but no suspension on the hit on Oshi and, and and so on. So there is, uh, and of course, you, you know we. <laughs> You know, I thought it was a bit disingenuous to say that that there was nothing wrong with the hit or it was a hockey hit or whatever. But uh, after the Ryan Reeves hit on Wilson, but I'm with you, I thought the call on the ice was exactly what was needed. I didn't think it warranted supplemental discipline. But, you know, Todd Reardon, the head coach in Washington, feels like saying, you know, Reeves was targeting Wilson all night. And, you know, what you know, what where is the line? And I guess that's the. That's a great challenge for George Paris and his group in in player well, safety
1: and it leads to this to this much bigger discussion uh, that I've had with some managers uh, over the past few months but where is the game headed because of course that was what happened the other night while you were there between Reeves and Wilson was a run of the mill incident ten fifteen years ago in the NHL yeah but but you can tell now every time something happens that the 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 sort of social compass of both people within the game and people watching the game, it keeps evolving. And, and you know, it's again, I i sort of wanted to write this piece this year, Scott, but I haven't got my hands around it. But even the notion, I had this vehement argument with the GM during the Board of Governors meeting uh, while we were having a couple of Diet Cokes one night um, <laughs> about my my assertion that, and I'm not... I'm not making a positive or negative comment. I'm saying it is what it is, how le- so much fewer hits there are in a, in a normal NHL game today compared to before and obviously that that game wasn't a good example, but generally speaking, I mean the, the Maple Leafs recently a couple of weeks ago had a game in which neither team had a got called for a penalty in back-to-back games. Think about that. In yeah. fact, one of them one of them was the, the Flyers game, which cost. Well, not which cost, but which was Ron Hextall's last game as GM. And they lost six nothing. But
0: right, exactly. I, I,
1: I, I, so the game is evolving, where you know you got way fewer pluggers in the lineup. I mean, your fourth liners skate like your first liners in some cases. And I just think there's there's less physical contact than there used to be. I don't care what they're registering as hits, quote unquote, in the stat sheet. I don't believe any of that. I'm right. I'm telling you what I'm seeing with my eyes. Uh, the guy cutting across the middle isn't getting his head taken off like 10 years ago. Um, a lot more stick-checking. And, and and it's fine. It's it's where, you know, the kind of players that are making up rosters now are more way more focused on speed and skill. Um, now, come playoff time, I think in the first round especially, that changes <laughs> suddenly.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: the contact goes through the roof, and it's a pretty compelling theater. But I guess what I'm saying, Scott, within all of this, you know, not just the Reeves Wilson and everything else, I I I just wonder again how the league and its caretakers are going to sort of, you know, wrap their hands around this, or is it just evolving on its own and no one has to interfere?
0: Well, and I guess, well, I I agree with you, and I think as a result of that, do we now look so much more closely at? you know those kinds of hits like the Ryan Rees Tom Wilson hit and and again the part of the the brunt of that injury is as a result of you know the, the initial contact Tom Wilson's helmet comes off and then he hits his head on the ice so mm-hmm. um you know pretty it was definitely scary <clears throat> and you know do we do we examine those kinds of hits much more closely now because they are they happen so uh, less frequently than 10 years ago or whatever. And uh, do we, you know, is there an undue then attention on player safety to, okay, well now what? Like how, how are we going to deal with those hits? And um, you know, maybe that's a function of, you know, because there aren't as many of them anymore that, that each one then comes under a brighter spotlight in in terms of how, you know, how do we police it or do we need to police it at all? And I wonder, like, are you comfortable with it? Like, you. It is what it is, like you said. But do you do you, you're not totally old school, right? You I think you're a
1: pretty forward thinking guy. So No, I, I I think frankly that we need to get to a place, uh, as a league. I say we. I mean I have you know, I'm on the outside I'm on the outside looking in, but uh, <clears throat> Yeah, we're invested um, no, in the I, game I, though. I, I think it has to get to a point somehow where there's just zero tolerance for head hits. One way or another. Yeah. You know, not to... I mean, basically, I agree with Ken Dryden. And um, I, I think there's just enough evidence there uh, to suggest what happens in terms of long-term damage or brain injuries and so on, that, that I think you know, you just have to continue to find ways to legislate as fewer hits as possible that result in, in head injuries. You're, not, you're never going to be 100%, obviously, because of the way the game is played. But what I'm saying is it's funny, again, because of the composition the the composition of lineups. You know, they're, they're, I mean, there's no one making a living fighting anymore in the NHL, basically. Um, right. And, and so, it, you know, it, it's fascinating to me how sometimes some things also get taken care of in-game, like on its own organically, let's say. Yeah. Um, uh, and you're seeing that with how the third and fourth lines of NHL teams are being made up now. And on defense, where... The idea where even as not that far ago where L.A. won the Cup in 2012 where you had three stay-at-home guys and three looming guys. Well, now everyone wants six looming guys on their backhand. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. So I think as, we can, as the game continues to change organically, it might just go hand-in-hand hand with the league's efforts. Hopefully the league's efforts to continue to legislate as much as possible for the safety of the players. Yeah, no, good point, and and but
0: I think your earlier point too, and, and the Capitals are an excellent example of that. I think is that you, you, you build your team for eighty two games during the regular season, and you're right. It's when you watch, I, like I I I love to watch the games, right? It's they're they're terrifically fast. That was a good hockey game. It was very tough. That was a tough hockey game in Vegas the other night. <clears throat> Alexander Ovechkin, massive open ice hit. Um, uh, uh, and so it was very physical, but very, very fast. But come playoff time, you're right. And you, ha- and you have to sort of build a team with an eye to, okay, we, you know, we have to compete through 82 games. We have to be able to, you know, we have to be fast and skilled. But with an eye to, okay, once we get to the playoffs, because the game does change you know, I, I don't know whether it's a dramatic change, but it's certainly a change that is evident to the eye test. So you have to build both ways. And I, I think that was again, you go back to the Capitals who were able to guys like or- Brooks Orpik. You know, often the brunt of criticism from fans and social media and people and analytics and all that kind of stuff had a monster playoff <laughs> for the Capitals. Right, Brooks Orpik was really really good, and that's because he's he's old school physical, knocking guys down and and he was an important part of that cup run and maybe less so during the regular season. And that's a real challenge then for GMs, right? In terms of how do you build your team so that you can compete on both um, both levels, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And, and what I think you, you, you have to end up with there are a lot of players who are comfortable in both settings, you know, who can... Yeah play with their head on the swivel come playoff time and have some durability. I think of the Jets. That's one of the reasons I love the roster so much is that they, they're still a pretty tough team, almost old school way, right. uh, wrapped around all that amazing skill. Right. And, um, you know, the, their downfall was that seven gamer with Nashville, which uh, they won, but took a pound of flesh out of them and uh, they had no juice left for Vegas. So, um, yeah, I can't wait. Let's just drop the puck now for the first game of the playoff. <laughs> All right. Well, <clears throat> we alluded to our conversation with
0: Marc-Andre Fleury, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, and I'm going to tell you, just as a spoiler, if you've seen the commercial that involves, uh, it came out earlier uh, this uh, this fall, uh, Marc-Andre Fleury and his longtime pal and teammate in Pittsburgh, Sidney Crosby, appearing in a commercial. A little bit of a spoiler alert. It's it's the magic of TV. I thought it was going to be more magical. But anyway, Marc-Andre Fleury uh, deals with that and and lots of other things. So let's give a listen to... My conversation with the netminder from the Vegas Golden Knights. I, I want to ask you. <clears throat> so we're almost at Christmas. What's your what? What was the greatest hockey gift you ever got? What was the best gift? Um, first set of goalie gear.
2: Well, it was just street hockey at that time. I wasn't playing on the ice set, but It was uh, just the first set of pads and
0: gloves. You know, loved it. Used them until they were beat up. Wait, so the mom and dad them to you or like how did they how did you get it i still did santa eh?
2: (laughs) right it was mom and dad yeah they knew my love i guess for goalies
0: why did you want to be a goalie what where did that come from
2: um i don't know really i just started playing um learned how to skate played one year and then i was in that by the way i always loved the gear and i love to just uh, dive on the ice too and stuff and i wasn't scoring much goals either so i was like i better still you get to play the whole game right and then you don't change <laughs> and yeah
0: but was there was there someone that you you know that was your goalie hero growing up or yeah uh, yeah but i was a big
2: fan of montreal so patrick Roy was uh, definitely one of the biggest uh, guy i look up to him and uh, marty Berdeur. i always love uh wah um, his compete and his, uh, the butterfly right that's when he came in and stuff and uh it was what you know he won a lot obviously and uh love um he was also very good but he was um unpredictable a bit you know the two bad stack, like the checks, and he was uh you could see him smile through his mask through the game right and it's something that stuck to my head a bit
0: do you did you do you have a relationship with those guys like you i assume you've probably met them over the years
2: yeah um I met Patrick, I think, um, just at a golf tournament over summer, and um, Marty, I got to spend a little bit of time with him at the Olympics in 2010, yep. so that was, uh, that was pretty cool to uh, just see how he is you know, off the ice and on a day-to-day basis.
0: When, when, you, when you look at those guys and you have, you have know you, you, you got to meet them, did it affect how you... Dealt with other people, not how you played necessarily, but maybe how you acted as a pro. Like, how do you, I guess, how do you learn to be the way you are as a professional athlete? Yeah, it's a good question, I think. Oh, I'm, okay. I'm not just a pretty face here. <laughs> yeah,
2: you're good. You're good at your job, too. Jeez. Uh, um, I think it starts young, right, with my parents that I knew all always um, very supportive, but also uh, they always told me to have my dad always said have fun you know go, go play out fun but then there was also work hard because you're gonna uh, you're gonna play the way you practice you know so uh, don't waste my time come <laughs> and do like work hard but have fun doing it you know and, um, and then you, and then growing up and like I said I, I saw you know Marty smiling a lot during games and loving what he did and um, and still having tons of success while you know enjoying it and um Patrick, I thought was more, uh, yeah, like serious, right? But like he's uh, had that fire in him always to to win
0: games, and I really, love that. I'm I'm curious about that because, and and I agree with you. I think Marty always always seemed to enjoy it. But I mean, then when it when you when someone scores on you, is it different now? Like, do you are you still mad? Do you get pissed off? Like, like. Does it, does it make you mad when you yeah. give up a goal still or is that just is that just over time you just are like listen things are going to happen <laughs> I still do get mad <laughs>
2: um, I think I'm better at um, forgetting it quick you know maybe before I would think about it longer throughout the game and now I think I'm better at just um I get mad, maybe I smash something, say a few bad words, and then take a deep breath, you know, and I'm back at it. You know, I think I'm better at this way, but definitely, you know, it's still very, uh, I don't know. It's just, that's what I do, right? I have pride, and I want to do well, and
0: when the puck goes by, then I'm not happy. <laughs> Right, So I tell you, one of my, I mean, I love that commercial with you and Sid, where you have like the Sid uh-huh. mask on. Like, where does that come from? Do they, like, does someone send you a script or say, hey, we want to shoot this commercial. This is what it's going to be like. Uh, like, how does that happen? Yeah, um, we, we both have, um,
2: we both wear CCM gear, right? And, um... Yeah, so it was just... The, they're the same guy. Every summer, I think we do a little something with them, right? On our separate ways, and uh, so they thought this... It's just them. They came up with uh, an idea that like, what do you think of this?
0: Would you be willing to do that?" Yeah, for sure. It'll be a lot of fun, you know? And that was, it. That was the start. I mean, it looks like it would be fun to do. Is it fun, yeah. or is it, is it hard work? At the end of it, you're like, well, I wish i never did that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Uh, they take good care of you, but I feel like we're not
2: used to the TV stuff, right? Like the... You know, the repetition, the makeup, the switching sets. Are, I don't know. Everything's longer, but um, no, they were good. They were good to me. Very um, make it work to my schedule. And, um, it was fun. At the end, I'm really happy to see what it looks like.
0: Did, Ed, did you actually shoot that in Cranberry then at the practice? No, because it looks like that. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, the truck was in Cranberry. That's a Cranberry. Good, good eye, good eye. Uh, but I did my part in Montreal over uh, the summer. <laughs>
0: you, it, did you actually even see Sid then? No, I didn't see Sid at all. <laughs> That's bullshit. I, I, I'm mad now. Cause I, mean, I, I shouldn't were... say should the magic
2: of the camera. <laughs> right? The magic of it. Yeah.
0: Because I thought that two of you would be hanging. So it's,
2: That's why I thought too, though. Right? When they told me, I was like, oh, perfect. Now we're going to try some time with him and stuff and then they're like huh oh, now he's was in pittsburgh or back home and That's so we did good.
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you like do you like doing those commercials though because I, I remember one you did one with um with like diapers and stuff was that for like yeah. a local health facility yeah.
2: hospital yeah um i don't know i feel like i don't like seeing my face on tv much right but i feel when they're um, funny right like i think it's it's better. Sometimes they ask you to be, you know, putting put your game face on or serious, And I'm like, I don't know, man. I, just, I can't that? do this. Yeah. But, uh, like, this one, like, the one with said, so I, I think I have the better of him at the end of the day, right? So, I'm, I'm happy with it, too.
0: Good stuff. I'm curious. Like, you've been here, so, you know, a year and a half or whatever yeah. it is. When you... When you knew that you were going to come here like in your in your heart or in your head, you're like okay we 're probably going to suck because <laughs> that 's what happens to expansion teams, and I wonder a, you know a year and a half in or whatever it is, do you sometimes look around and go, "This is way different than I thought it was going yeah, to be, be. <laughs> it is it
2: is for sure, um, for the best, obviously, just th- I think there was lots of unknowns, right eh? like you can just only think about stuff but you don't know right and the one thing to i was thinking like bring the game biggest how much fan base are we gonna have you know and it's turned out to be so so fun and what the best building to play in the league to and uh, i think you saw right last yeah, game like a lot of gets and stuff like game
0: was off the yeah
2: like, like it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun and um the organization the staff that we have everybody's very uh, very good and very nice and um you know, I was. I think last year I was hoping we could battle for to play for a playoff spot, right? And yeah. to, to I don't
0: know. I was I was really happy and relieved that we were winning some games, you know. Because uh, you know, I I don't know whether you thought of it, but I think a lot of people imagine. Okay, you're going to come here. You're probably if the team is what we thought it was going to be, which, which is going to you know was going to be hard. That you might get traded. You might get you know you might be one of those players who is an attractive. Asset to get traded or to trade that line. I don't know whether you thought of it that way, but now that i mean—you signed the extension, and yeah. this is like—it does it feel like home now? Yeah, like I, I don't want to go nowhere else, mm. right? And I think you always
2: want to play for a team that you have um, a chance to win, right? And um, you know, obviously okay. we're not at the top of the standing right now, but I think we've been pl- been playing better lately, and yeah. um, I, I like this team. We believe in this team, you know, and. Um, yeah, uh, it's everybody's been nice to me and my family since we've been here, and you know I, I feel very fortunate
0: for all that. Now you're you have two girls, right? Are yeah. they what five and three? Yeah, yeah good guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't guessing. I looked. I did you my did, research. Uh, yeah, I, I tell point you. Point uh, do, do they have a sense now of what you do? Because I, I, it strikes me that that would be important. That you know that you want your kids to have a memory of you. Playing yeah. and being do, do they do they know what you do like uh, or did yeah I think, yeah they do especially the, the
2: oldest right but mm-hmm. um, now I think kids in school start to talk to them about hockey and they <laughs> wondering are people asking for pictures on the street and stuff you know so uh, I guess they um, <laughs> they see that sometimes they're uh, they pull on me so I stop <laughs> so I watch them a bit right I don't know when they're doing skating last night and stuff so I was watching them but um, I think I think they understand and they're good too you know sometime before I leave they go
0: oh I'll step on the box tonight you know good luck and stuff so I think it's, yeah, it's good they're not old enough though where they're like what what were you doing on that play like they don't break down your game <laughs> no they're just happy to
2: um, to see me or something so it's still a good feeling otherwise when I have to answer questions
0: and know oh, jeez. <laughs> That'll come soon enough. Yeah, do they? Yeah. So do, do, do they want to play? Or, I mean, do they have a? Do you have a sense of whether that's something they want to do?
2: Um, I don't know. They're both in to skate once a week right, with a, a, tra- uh, a coach right, and um, trying to figure it out, trying to learn yeah. how to skate first, and uh, we'll see. One still has her hockey skates on, so the other one went to the figure skating. So we'll see.
0: Oh. All right. We. Uh, Pierre, just before we close out this first segment, we're going to hear from our good pal and colleague, Chris Stevenson. We'll talk some Ottawa, talk uh, your trip to the Board of Governors. You have just returned home as well. Um, but before we uh, close out this first segment, uh, would you think, of, is, there any, is, there, is there any doubt in your mind? Like is Mark andre Fleury, definite Hall of Famer, right? This is, like his numbers are, are are off the charts, the championships, Hall of Famer for sure.
1: I'd have to sit down at the end of his career, and, and uh, I hate saying that while a guy's still playing, because, uh, although I say it for Joe Thornton all the time. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm I with you I, on I, Joe. I've come around. I, I think well, Joe Thornton's I a mean, Hall of Famer for sure. I
1: mean, goodness, look at his numbers all the time, ranked against the greats. It's a no-brainer for, for Jumbo. But uh, I think Flurry is, goalies are funny. For some reason, it's harder for goalies to get into the Hall. You know, you, yes. you look. You look at uh, Curtis Joseph's numbers, and I and I think they warrant inclusion, and he's not in. And uh, it, this, it's just some interesting arguments there. and For whatever reason, you know, I'm not on the Hall of Fame committee, so it's easy for me to comment from the outside looking in. But sure, goal, goalies uh, seem to have a bigger hurdle to to climb than positional players. But uh, yeah, I'm with you on Flurry at, at first blush. It's a, you know, it's it's such a funny. Uh,
0: and we talked about it he and I, but when you when you knew that he was going to end up in Vegas, I think a lot of us thought it was just going to be a stop cap position or could be, right? I mean, we anticipated that team was going to be like every expansion team anywhere all time and that they were going to struggle and that he might be an asset that George McPhee would turn into other picks or young prospects and that he would be an attractive addition to another team and and uh, all of a sudden it's it's he, it's his home now and he is such an integral part of the team and you know we use the cliche the face of a franchise all those kinds of things but he really is I would say you know Derek England's been very important there Nate Schmidt you mentioned his personality is just so infectious but Marc-Andre Fleury is 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 the man in Vegas and it's it's interesting how quickly that's become his new hockey home and I think that's a you know it's a testament to him and it's a testament to that organization and and their connection right away with that community it's been it was fun to be back there that's for sure to see that game
1: well, and by the way, since I was just at the Board of Governors this week, and uh, where the league confirmed again that Seattle will enjoy the same benefits uh, and uh, of the of the rules of the expansion draft that uh, Vegas was able to leverage. Um, this came up in a conversation I had with someone, and uh, over a diet coke. Uh, or? Well, no, this one was during work hours, and well, <laughs> I, I, I I can share with who and and but it, it was more of a general conversation. I, I spoke with. Uh, Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly about how he felt all the transactions ended up going in terms of how Vegas played the expansion draft process, right? Not just who they took, but uh, all the uh, um, all the side trades around it, which the league paid close attention to. And Bill Daly said he was pleased that you know it all s- passed the smell test, which was the point, right? Yeah. And um, so now they got to hope that the same thing happens with Seattle. Now we didn't talk about this specifically, but I assume that he would have pointed this out had he thought that it didn't smell, it didn't pass the smell test. Flurries, and this continues to not get as much attention I think as you know it should. But I reported this on the night of the expansion draft, which is a terrible night to report anything because there's so much going on and excitement, and people are writing a million different stories, but. The Marc-Andre Fleury was essentially traded to Vegas on Mar- on uh, at the trade deadline back on March 1st that season. Okay? Right. Yep. And w- what happened is uh, Vegas and so George McPhee and Jim Rutherford in Pittsburgh had an agreement that Vegas would, uh, would take Fleury in the expansion draft a number of months later. In exchange, Pittsburgh would also send, I think it was a second round pick to Vegas in exchange for doing that. Uh, right. Now, now, what happened is the league was, my understanding is the league was aware of this agreement way back on, I don't know if the deadline was on March 1st or February 28th that year, but whatever the day the deadline was. Because remember, right. that was the day where, where Vegas, for mm-hmm. the first time, was allowed to start to make deals. Exactly, and, yeah. And, and now, now here's where, because I've kept digging on this so over the course of time, this deal was not... Uh, processed through it was not officially registered as a trade that day it was not processed through central registry this was an agreement a gentleman's agreement between george McPhee and jim rutherford and the league was okay with it and the reason i bring it up is that i mean i've I've not heard from another team that complained about this right but you, you know you've agreed to deal the guy before you go in a playoff run where he helps you win a cup I'm just saying. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, uh, and it led to some confusion because after the, the, the Penguins won their second cup and Fleury would be on his way to Vegas, we st- it still wasn't official. It wasn't made official until the night of the expansion draft in in, late, in mid to late June. Right Bef- be- Before that played out, there were teams, notably Philadelphia and Calgary, that right. were making inquiries about Marc-Andre Fleury. Right. And, and, you know, Jim Rutherford, I guess, had to sort of dance around it and say, well, he's not available. And 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 eventually we found out why. But um, listen, uh, Vegas and Pittsburgh did nothing wrong. I mean, they were above board. They, they let the league know. But it is fascinating to me that, you know, you essentially traded a guy at the trade deadline to Vegas. But before he's gone, uh, help us win a cup. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's well, pretty fascinating to me.
0: Well, and, and what would have happened then, because it was a gentleman's agreement, and, and if you knew George McPhee and you knew Jim Rutherford, you knew that both sides would absolutely honor it, but, you know, we've seen... Th- deals, you know, a lot guys have gentlemen's agreements on well, what about this, or maybe we could do that, or I would sign you, or like even and maybe we'll talk about this in the second segment when we when Chris Stevenson joins us, but this whole notion that Kyle Dubas has agreed not to trade William Nylander, if that's the case, and what that what does that actually mean? Because uh, these kinds of conversations happen and sometimes they change. Like what if Jim Rutherford, you know, gets a, a through the roof offer for Marc-Andre Fleury You know, I mean, and he trades him to Philly or to Calgary, you know, I'm sure he would never do that because that's not who he is. But, you know, because it was a gentleman's agreement and because this is a business about winning, you could see that sometimes maybe these things, you know, (laughs) might fall apart a bit. And, And I assume George probably... Might not have had any recourse if Jim had decided to do it because it wasn't registered. So it would have created lots of bad feelings. But it was, um, I think you're right, it's It's fascinating that this. It was, it was something that put in place and took, you know, four months or whatever it took to, to actually come to fruition. So
1: Right. And by the way, before we finish the segment, I brought this up on insider trading last night because it fascinates me. Um, And I think our our own Jesse Granger uh, for the Athletic in Vegas hinted at it in his piece the other day. But this expansion process will have a different dynamic for the very reason that Vegas has a unique position in it. First of all, it is exempt from it and is not participating in it, right? Right, exactly. However, it does not prevent Vegas from participating in a whole other way. (laughs) And the point I made on insider trading last night was that if you know George McPhee and his lieutenant, Kelly McCrimmon, um, they're, I, I'm telling you right now, they're going to go to teams during the Seattle expansion process, and especially in the months leading up to it, and say, well, you know, it looks like you guys are struggling with your protection list. How about we offer you X for X and make your life easier? Yeah. Uh, and I'm being sarcastic when I talk about make your life easier, but because some teams felt they were getting... <laughs> yeah. they, were, they, they were getting... Uh, but they had their feet held to the coals by George McPhee in the first process. My point is, Vegas can join in on the Seattle expansion fund in sort of a, a middleman way, which is will make that dynamic completely different than the than the Vegas expansion draft where there was zero interference. Right. So exactly, I, I think it just goes to show you that even another reason why Seattle will have a potentially uh, a tougher time. And by the way. That's why it would be quite intriguing if Kelly McCrimmon does end up the GM in Seattle because now, he'd be, now he knew his old boss's secrets through the expansion process and would be competing with his old boss to some degree and, and trying to leverage all the other teams through that process. It'd be kind of fun. I, you know, We well, don't know who Seattle's going to hire, yeah. but it'd be pretty shocking if Kelly McCrimmon wasn't a candidate.
0: Well, for sure. And then joining them in the Pacific Division, I mean, how that's going to be pretty cool. So, all right, let's do this. Let's take a very brief break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes, as we always do for the second segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And we'll hear from Chris Stevenson. And I want to ask you some more about the Board of Governors and Seattle and where we go from here. And um, yeah, so don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, here we go. Second segment, Two-Man Advantage, the podcast, as always. And what a treat to have Chris Stevenson, our longtime pal and colleague from Ottawa, joining us in the second segment. And this, I will warn you, when I asked Chris about coming on, Pierre, he said, I, I will likely be grumpy because he was covering a game um, the night before our taping, he was covering Ottawa, Montreal. So, Chris, how you feeling? Are you are you grumpy? Where's your grumpy scale today? Are you on one to ten?
3: I think we're uh, relatively fortunate. I think I don't know on a scale of ten, I'm only going to put
0: it at about uh, seven or eight. Wow. Okay. I feel pretty good then. So I don't have to. I don't have to to handle you with kid gloves too much then this morning. So, but that's good. We we should probably start. Uh, we should
1: probably start uh, with that game. I was working it in studio for for TSN, uh, CJ, and uh, kind of a. I don't I don't know if it's a week we'll look back on in terms of how the rest of the season goes for the Habs and the Senators, but for Montreal to not only sweep the home and home, but also in rather convincing fashion, but now there's six points between them, right? It's. Uh, I mean, you know, I I think we thought it'd be tougher sledding for the for the Sens, you know, given their massive rebuild and and all the youth that they're carrying, but kind of a, you know, not exactly what the senators would have hoped for this week. I would think going into that home at home.
3: No. And, you know, especially because of the way that that it unfolded for them. You know, if you look back at the beginning of the week, they went into the, uh, the bell center on Tuesday with a three game winning streak. And, you know, there was a little bit of, of, uh, you know what I thought was, to a certain extent, some false bravado about the Senators having turned the corner defensively because they were coming off a couple of games where they did play a little bit better in terms of of possession and and um, goals against. Because of course they've been the worst defensive team in the in the league by a couple of football fields anyway this year. And all those and all those things kind of you know came back to haunt them on Tuesday night in in Montreal and again last night and and I know a lot of the focus is on um, on the defensive play um, you now on the narrative. Well, I'll just backtrack just for a little bit. You know, like a lot of the narrative about the Senators this year as it's emerged is that you know and a lot of it fueled by the coach is they're a young team. Uh, it's going to take some time for, you know, integrating the kids into the lineup. It was going to take a little while for those kids to learn how to compete in the national hockey league, how to play defensively, um, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, For me, the issues they had this week didn't have much to do with that. Like the issues they had against the Canadians had a lot more to do with their play in the Canadian zone in terms of their forechecking and, and uh, that, that's really where the defensive problems started, where at the end, other end of the ice, very undisciplined in terms of their, I did a piece breaking it down for the athletic, and you know, are really undisciplined in terms of their third man, three guys down at the goal line, getting caught in in uh, odd man situations, coming back up the ice, which led to uh, you know three goals in about uh, less than five minutes in that second period, which sunk them on Tuesday. Um, and, and the, the the bad thing was it was like a guy like Mark Stone, you know, a veteran guy who's expected to be setting the example that was making a couple of the mistakes for uh, for the senators. So that for me that was the the disconcerting part about the way the the week unfolded. And you know, and like you said, pretty high hopes going into the week, having won three games in a row and and an opportunity if they had won on Tuesday to to tie the abs in the standings and and be in a situation where maybe they could challenge for a playoff spot. And after last night's game, with uh, we don't have any confirmation of the extent of the injuries, but you know both Bobby Ryan and Matt Duchesne left that game last night about halfway through and, and didn't return. Bobby Ryan with an upper body injury, uh, Matt Duchesne with a lower body injury. So, uh, yeah, we could be looking at maybe this is, you know, when all is said and done, looking back on this being the defining week of their season, and it, and it won't be good news.
1: Yeah. It's it's too bad. Sorry, Scott. It's too bad. You know, I mean, Bobby Ryan had, you know, you tell me CJ had been a serviceable player this year. And, but especially Matt Duchesne had been literally one of the best 10 players in the entire league. Uh, just, uh, and, and, you know, putting up the points and, uh, and really, uh, reminding us of the player that he is. So that, that could be just a massive injury to that team.
3: Well, you know, especially Pierre, because, you know, you're already with a a veteran guy like Jean-Gabriel Pajot, right? Who is, you know, really looked at as, you know, one of the, I'm not going to say a good two-way center because, you know, the offense isn't really great. But certainly one of the better defensive centers in the league and and certainly the best one that the Senators had. You know, he hasn't been with them all year because of that uh, Achilles injury that he, he picked up in, in training camp, you know, and although he's ahead of schedule, he's skating with the senators right now. He's still like another month away. And you're right about, you know, Duchesne, um in a contract year, uh, looked like he was really, really motivated to prove that uh, he was a legitimate number one center in, in the league. And I think if you go back to uh, January 1st, if you look at this calendar year, uh, like you said, he, he's right there among the uh, among the top 10 players in the NHL. So this is going to be, you know, crushing news for them. And and somebody tweeted at me last night during the game, after it happened that um, they said you could see him trying to get to the bench and uh, and, uh, one of the officials was there and he kind of turned to one of the officials and said, it's my groin. So Hmm. um, they're off today. I I don't know if there's going to be, if there's going to be any kind of update today. But, you know, they come right back and play uh, Pittsburgh tomorrow on Saturday. And then they've got Boston here on on Sunday. So and then they hit the road. So, yeah, I, I I think we're looking at this absolutely critical, critical part of the season. And you're going into it now with, you know, young Colin White basically having to be uh, having to be your number one center.
0: Um, Chris, there's no way to to look at this team without taking the long lens to it. And and I wonder what it's been like for you. And this team is, I mean, we we often use the terms like tire fire and train wreck and, you know, whatever kind of term you want to use for what has gone on around this team for the last year and a half or so. And I wonder what it's been like for you. You're an Ottawa guy, right? I mean, you and I have known each other since... Uh, I was going to Carlton and you and Bruce Garriac were working at the Ottawa Sunday Herald. I mean, we it's been, you know, you you're, you have seen this team from its very infancy and going through now, uh, you know, an arena deal that now appears to be on the rocks. It would have seen a new arena near downtown built. Uh, obviously, lots of issues with ownership and Eugene Melnick, the whole Eric Carlson thing and the Hoffman trade. And, and Duchesne, I like it. I wonder—is there a way to describe what it's been like to cover this team? Because every week, it seems there is some other, some other terrible thing that happens that just sort of piles up on a team that you know. There's, which kind of sad because there's been lots of maybe slightly uh, surprisingly positive elements this season with young players, and whether it's a Shabbat or, you know, there the, there are reasons that this team is not as bad as we thought, but there's there's also a lot of negative uh, influences or, or forces around the team. And I wonder what it's been like for you.
3: Did you have dumpster fire in your list uh, of descriptions? Uh, that, I, uh, I, that was
0: down my list, but I like dumpster fire too. <laughs> yeah,
3: that one's, that, one's, that one's in popular use around Ottawa. Yeah, it's interesting you, you, you bring up the timeline because uh, yesterday, Thursday was actually uh, what? the 20, 28th anniversary of the Senators actually getting awarded uh, um, an NHL franchise. I was there in, in uh, Palm Beach, Florida when John Ziegler made the announcement, right, on, uh, on December 6th, 1990, that the Senators and, and uh, Ciampa had been awarded National Hockey League franchises. And um, I'm not going to say this is anything... I'm not going to say this is anything new because if you go back to those early days, certainly all those descriptions that you use could have been applied to a lot of what went on in those those early years of uh, early years of of the senators. But, you know, back then, everybody looked at it as the the growing pains that you have as as an expansion franchise. You know, Um, you look at the success that that vegas had with with uh the great players that they wound up getting and maybe a little bit of mismanagement by some general managers in terms of the quality of players and the lineup that they could put together i remember the late great john ferguson who was the director of player personnel for the senators back then saying they gave us snow in winter when it, came to <laughs> the, when it came to
0: describing
3: the but Peter Sadorkoviches and and, uh, the other guys that they wound up getting in their expansion draft. So, I mean, the senators have seen their, their dark days uh, before, you know, don't forget there was a bankruptcy in their, uh, in their past, which, which of course led to, you know, Eugene Melnick coming to own the team. But, you know, I think, I think the difference now, Scott, is that, um, you know, back in those days as as difficult as it might have been for for first Bruce Firestone and and then Rod Bryden uh as owners was that everybody was like well-intentioned. And you know, common theme was, you know, finances were were an issue. But I think the feeling now here in Ottawa to a large extent is is a lot of what's happening to the team now is really is really self-inflicted and most of it stems from, from ownership that, you know, in, in the last year, and we're coming almost up to uh, a year to the day, you know, EG Nelmick making those comments about attendance and, and if it didn't improve, then, you know, maybe I'll think about, you know, moving the team and, and, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Comments about uh, if somebody's not coming to your grocery store, but there's a grocery store around the corner that's having success. You have to look at at why and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's really the the uh, the tipping point, I think. You know, a lot of people had been been uh, upset with his ownership, but that was the real tipping point last year. You know, that's that spawned the hashtag Melnickout movement, um, and now. Eric, you know, Eric, you can, you can make an argument that they're better off not having Eric Carlson, that maybe at this point um, paying one guy 11 or 12 million dollars when you had Stone and Duchesne coming up and and you're going through a rebuild and whether he was the right guy to lead this team through a rebuild at, at, at this point in his career. He didn't make all those arguments, but a lot of people here in, in Ottawa chose to view it just as Eugene Melnick not having the money to sign the most talented player that the Senators have have ever had. Um, and I understand the the feelings of those, those people. And certainly the, uh, you know, I think the backlash against ownership here in Ottawa right now is reflected in the attendance. Um, they've been averaging, um, I think right around 14,000 this year, which when you think of the heyday of this franchise and that, span from 97 to 2007 when they were sold out almost every night is is really appalling and and probably the the biggest exclamation point on where this franchise stands right now.
0: Yeah. Pierre, I mean you you have a great vantage point to this because you are Canadian. You understand the history of this franchise, and and well, like people, people forget that the other Canadian franchises have gone through issues in the past too. Right? You know, I would back in the day I was in Calgary where they had blocked off the whole upper level of the Saddle Dome because they couldn't sell tickets, and you know you sort of it's easy to forget. And there's been some you know been tough times in Vancouver and uh, obviously Edmonton in terms of not making the playoffs for you know. You know, years and years and all those kinds of issues but is there when you look at ottawa it strikes me that they like as chris alluded to there's some different it just feels different with what's been going on there and i wonder if you if you believe that or, or how do you see this how do you see it playing out how does how do you pull yourself out of something like this if you're the ottawa senators in that marketplace
1: well you need a downtown rink to begin with and and you know, Chris can tell you all about that, but uh, I, I think it's more paramount than ever that they figure that out, and it certainly doesn't look terribly hopeful right now with everything that's happened the last few weeks. But for people listening that have never been to a game in Ottawa, uh, you know, if you have been to a game uh, in Glendale, Arizona, it, it's it's a similar setup in, in terms of the drive out from where most people live uh, to yeah. get to a game, and and it just makes it difficult to get a walk up crowd, and and you know, to me, Ottawa's if not the most beautiful downtown in the entire country, one of, and you know people love being in that city from outside for work or tourists, and those people when they look at their watch and it's six o'clock and say, "Oh, let's go to a Senators game." No chance. Right, you're, you're, you're not going to a Senators game at six o'clock because it'll take you 45 minutes to get out there, and and a downtown rink, uh, LeBrunton Flats, would be just. An absolute franchise saver and you know for a while it seemed like that was a distinct possibility although i think cj you wrote you always wondered from the get-go you had your reservations about uh w- whether all this would get pulled together
3: yeah no uh, no question and scotty just back to uh your point about, you know, kind of the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of Canadian franchises. I mean, don't forget in in the early two thousands, there were like three, four 5,000 empty seats, even at the bell center,
0: you know? Yeah. -hmm. Um,
3: Nobody, nobody wanted to buy the Montreal Canadians. Remember George, nobody in Canada wanted them. The Montreal Canadians, George Gillette came in and almost in a similar scenario to, uh, you know, what uh, Melnick situation here in Ottawa wound up getting both the franchise and, and the uh, the building for a song. Um, if I remember right, Pierre, I mean, I think, I think George Gillette paid it basically through the most storied uh, National Hockey League franchise and, and one of the most successful in the history of pro sports. But the team was almost like a bonus. I think he paid for both the team and the building, what the building wound up costing. So, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we typically look at these things, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the long lens, Scotty, we look at these things most of the time, I think, through the short lens and, and look at what an appalling situation Ottawa is in right now. But I think for just about every franchise, except for probably the Toronto Maple Leafs, if we're just talking about attendance, I think every other Canadian team um, has kind of gone through this this type of thing at, at some point. And it's, in its existence. Yeah, no,
1: and and I mean, and I would argue, CJ, sorry to interrupt, even the Leafs, and people are very quick to forget this because now it looks like they're set up for quite an era in their history, but, you know, right at the end of Tankapalooza, or I should say right at the beginning of Tankapalooza before they ended up, you know, playing badly enough to to win the lottery and get Austin Matthews, there were some interesting years here in Toronto uh, between Salute Gate, and jerseys being thrown on the ice, and the just yeah. the pure the, the the pure apathy that existed in, in in this you know in this city that has an endless pit of money and, and obviously the biggest city in our country. The, there were people saying, you know, I'm not, I, I'm I'm out on this. And MLSC noticed. Believe you me, uh, I mean. So let's just, I mean, I think that just proves the ultimate point, which is no franchise is fireproof. If, if you're not going to treat your yeah. fans right. And, and yeah. you know, I, I just think for the Senators, the great juxtaposition to me is that the discontent that Senators fans uh, clearly have with ownership, uh, the juxtaposition is that on ice, once again, this is a team that drafts well. And <laughs> they've, they've got some pretty exciting young players, right? I mean, Brady Kachuk, if he keeps going here, even with the injury that delayed part of his season, uh. I mean, he should end up a Calder Trophy nominee for sure. In my oh, mind, the way yeah. the way he's going, yeah. and you know Thomas Shabbat with his point production. Now, you know, I thought last night CJ he struggled defensively against the half but that's going to happen with a young defenseman. But you know, he's he's a special young talent. Colin White, uh, you know, the kids coming up underneath. It's that that's what kind of mesmerizes me. Is is the, sort of the the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what the, the the hockey part of the team can still do compared to obviously on the business side ownership side where um, you know fans have obviously had enough.
3: Yeah, and and the the timing really stinks at this point to tell you the truth because of, of what you're saying. Like if you if you know I don't know how many people pay attention to the centers because certainly expectations weren't very high going into the season and everything else but they're actually you know a a really fun and entertaining team in it and in this marketplace where um you know i I think they they decided you know a a rebuild made sense with what they with what they had at this point because they do have a bunch of of really kind of blue chip prospects at this point you know like the chuck came in we weren't really sure what we were getting here's a a kid coming in who had only scored eight goals at Boston University last year and and um you know I think at the start of training camp it was a little bit of a wait and see situation to to see if he was gonna be capable of competing against men. Um and he's been nothing short of a revelation this year. He's been one of their best players, one of the most consistent players at um, you know, as a teenager. You're right about, you know, Shabbat. I think with, with Eric Carlson gone. And those minutes and opportunities uh, available with, with Carlson's departure, like Shabbat just jumped right in and and, and seized full control of that, of that opportunity to become a number one defenseman. And you know what it's like when you get a team where you get a bunch of kids on it at the same time? Like, there's a new energy around the team. And I think, you know, um, you look at a, a veteran guy like uh, Craig Anderson, I think he was really... You know, reinvigorated this year with with the energy that the kids brought to that dressing room. You know, he's got Max Lajoie, who's another um, really good looking defensive prospect. who has been out the last little bit with an injury, but uh, could very well be back tomorrow against Pittsburgh. You mm-hmm. know, he's he's living at he's living at you know Craig Anderson's place, and I think it's kind of given Craig Anderson some new uh, some new piss and vinegar this year. So. Yeah, you know what? If if you could kind of strip away all the other negativity that's around the team, around ownership, and and what's going on at LeBreton Flats and everything else, this this potentially was a pretty likable team for for the fans here, just for uh, you know the prospects of of where they could be going in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, and and before and before we go to you, because uh, I think Scotty wants to ask you, CJ, about LeBreton Flats to explain exactly where that yeah. is given how critical yeah. it is to the survival of the franchise. I want to make a quick point on Brady Kachuk because, you know, I, I really questioned uh, Pierre Daniel's decision last June to not give the fourth overall pick to the Colorado Avalanche uh, yep. as, par- as part of the Matt Duchesne option pick. And I have to say, I'm starting to come around watching the impact that Brady Kachuk already has that maybe I was wrong. Uh, I, I mean, I, I I must have asked Dorino at least seven times within a two-week period if he was thinking of trading the pick to the giving the pick to Colorado and securing you know next June's pick. And yeah. it, listen, if it ends up costing Jack Hughes, and I, I still think it's a it's a blunder. But outside of that, and, and again, I don't I haven't studied the the draft class yet. Uh, I usually wait till after the year to do that, but certainly. How many players after Jack Hughes, I wonder, will you know live up, measure up to the Brady Kachuk impact? You know, so it, it may end yeah. up being interestingly enough what looked like a total snafu, at least through my lens. I'm starting to reconsider a bit,
3: yeah. And it's you know, obviously, everybody's looking at, at Jack Hughes as being another Austin Matthews. You know, I don't think on the on the I don't know. I guess there might be a lot of people out there who thinks that think that when all is said and done, Austin Matthews won't be that far far behind Connor McDavid in their careers if things keep going the way they are in Edmonton. And and Connor McDavid doesn't have the team success maybe that it looks like Austin Matthews is going to be able to have with with the Leafs. Um, but you wonder about you know the, uh, the 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 Jack Hughes thing and 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 Kachuk and the ultimate impact that they could have on the franchise. Like Kachuk gives them something that they haven't had maybe ever. Like that, that big power forward who's willing to go to the front of the net. I mean, I i did a breakdown of Kachuk's goals this year, and they're all from like, you know, he's had, he's had two, I think, from outside of 20 feet, so to nine goals. They're all like nine feet, 13 feet, you know, 16 feet, eight feet, six feet. Like, he's that guy that's at the net. Um, and for, for me, the thing I like about that, and we've been talking about, you know, how much sustained, sustained success can, you know, a teenager have in the NHL? They're going to hit a, you know, a speed wobble at some point. But by the, the nature of the goals that he scores, like, I, I wonder if he is one of those guys that, that maybe is, is um, just because of his willingness to go to the net and battle in the blue paint, that I'm not gonna say that he's that he's a slump proof type player, but he's not relying on on, you know, having to beat a, a guy or a great play being made to get a goal. Like he's just brute force and mm-hmm. that willingness to get in there and push and, and grind to jump on loose pucks. If if he's gonna keep having, you know, a line mate like a like a Mark Stone that's going to get the puck to him and get it to the front of the net. He's been playing with Colin White as well, who who really has been great. I think over the last two or three weeks, Colin White's game is just like blossoming. Yeah, he's just, he skated beautifully last night and created yeah. a lot, you know, for, yeah. for what was a pretty poor Senators team. Um, yeah, I like the, the Brady Kachuk thing is going to be a great debate in Ottawa for a long time, especially once we get past next year's draft and we find out exactly what they gave up to, to Colorado to complete that deal, I, I think it's going to be a great debate for a long time about you know the decision that that Dorio made to use that pick last year.
1: Yeah, and again, even if the Senators finished thirty first, the odds now have changed so dramatically in the lottery. It doesn't mean yeah. that that's yeah. that that's Jack you. So yeah, it's yeah. interesting, and, and you know, obviously, what the Senators will argue, and perhaps correctly, as time goes on, is that Brady Kachuk was their greatest chance then and there to really. Sort of get this rebuild going in a hurry, as opposed to waiting, yeah. you know, for next June. But again, the the, the the one argument that trumps all is if it does end up, Jack Hughes, that'll be it. it just yeah, that, that no, one's totally. uh, <laughs> that one's can't win that one. Yeah, uh, Christian. Just said, I, I mean, uh,
3: just another, just another, uh, just another short aside on 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 Kachuk before we move on. Like I, I, I always wonder in the whole scouting process, you know, I think that's one area where, uh, where teams have fallen down in the past. And really, you know, when you look at the number of flops that there have been in, in uh, the course of, of uh, the NHL draft and, and typically it's their, their character related issues, right. Um, just like from the, the level of a kid's work ethic or, or what kind of personality he has. And I, and I know there's been so much emphasis on the interviews they do and everything else. I just don't think they do enough, interviewing of people like around the player to really find out what kind of kid he is. Mm -hmm. And like Kachuk has come in and, and really just, he's like an old hockey soul at, at 19 years old. Like he's an old school hockey player. And a lot of it I guess is because he did grow up around NHL dressing rooms, right. Because of his, because of his dad, but he's, he's just come in and I, and I think just as importantly what he's done for them on the ice It's it's been off the ice and just he's got kind of this goofy, you know, teenage um, aura that he brings to the dressing room. The other players just love him. And when he's out on the ice now, like he's one of the most intimidating guys that the senators have. Like he doesn't back down from any battle. He's willing to jaw with people. He's chirping with the best of them. And I I think those elements too are uh, for a 19-year-old kid can't be overlooked in terms of what he's what he's brought for uh, the senators. And of course, as he gets more, more confidence and and gets bigger, that's all those qualities are going to be, are going to be bigger and better for him as time goes on.
0: Well, I I do know that uh, given the senators uh, poor karma, my guess is that they miss the playoffs by four or five points and then win the lottery anyway. And then the number one (laughs) pick will go to Colorado. So I, (laughs) <laughs> I'm predicting that right now, but um, just before we wrap up this uh, second segment and this edition of two man advantage, I mean, Pierre, you are just back from the board of governors and and Chris, you alluded to, you know, the the early days of the senators and, and back in yeah. the days when expansion teams did what they were supposed to do, which was suck, man. <laughs> now we're going to have a 32nd team and uh, with Seattle being formally awarded the 32nd franchise at the Board of Governors meetings in, in Seaside, Georgia. Um, I always am fascinated by the fact that the Board of Governors try and have their meetings as far away from actual hockey games as possible. I'm not sure what that says. But, uh, Pierre, we, it, was there a sense of none other disappointment or um, was there any sort of um, negative feeling, the fact that, uh, that the league pushed the Seattle's um, inaugural season to 2021 20, 22, as opposed to, you know, I think my sense was that you know, ideally they Seattle would have liked to have come in in 2021. 20, uh, any feelings on that? It's it's based on on the, the structure of the the building, right? The renovations to the Key Arena. Is or what, what what was their yeah, from that?
1: Uh, and the league and the Seattle group will tell you it's not. It wasn't the league pushing. It was the league asking questions and needing a guarantee that. That if they were going to do 2020, the fall of 20, that that the rink had to be ready. I mean, this idea right. of opening the first couple of weeks on the road and hoping everything goes well and you're ready for week three, that just wasn't cutting it with the league. And, and you know, it, it's frustrating for Todd Lewicki and the Seattle guys because they really wanted to use the momentum they have right now. I mean, they got 33,000 ticket deposits for a rink that's going to hold 17,300 that's pretty and good. So it, it, you know, but now they're going to have to wait an extra year and the extra year is going to also crush them uh, I think on the expansion draft side where teams you know, I think it was Ray Shero who made this point to me the GM of the Devils, you know, the you know, the the other teams got the expansion draft rules which by the way were brand new because this whole process with Vegas was so different than ever before. They got the draft rules like I don't know, what 12 months before the actual draft was held. That was, you know, not only was that a, a much shorter time frame than they're going to have now to prepare for the Seattle expansion draft, but it was also new. Like they were trying to figure out the ins and outs of this whole new expansion draft process in terms of the best strategy, uh, you know, around the criteria. Now it's the exact same rules, and you have an extra year to, to prepare. <laughs> so, so I think it's it's really going to be tough sledding for Seattle. Uh, you know, they'll have just as good a pool of player to pick from, but. Uh, I think that the other teams are going to be much wiser in how they approach it and not panic and overpay and do all these side deals. Um, so that's, you know, on the on the flip side, the one advantage Seattle may have if they decide to use it, and I know that in talking to them, they're deliberating this over the past week. They might hire GM much earlier than Vegas did. Vegas hired George McPhee 15 months out before puck drop seattle is talking internally about whether there's any merit in hiring a gm two years out and yeah. honestly it comes with you know there's an expense of that you the gm is going to be your highest paid front office guy but i think it's if you're paying 650 million dollars for an expansion team probably a drop in a bucket to have the advantage of having a, you new person in charge trying to navigate what will be not as smooth a ride in terms of the other teams being being wiser to it.
0: Yeah. Chris, I, I'm curious, and I th- um, Pierre, I think, is, is right on with that, and that makes sense. Do you think it, it's, um, I mean, you feel sort of badly for them. A, they have to, you know, Seattle pays $150 million more than Bill Foley paid uh, for the Golden Knights, and now all the other GMs are going to be smarter and wiser, and so it's going to be harder for them. Do you, like, Do you think that affects how they'll be received in the community and the expectations, you know, like uh, our fans in Seattle are going to look at Vegas and go, well, this team, you know, had all this success, obviously going to a final was a complete anomaly, but still, even the fact that they were in the playoffs in their first year, you know, maybe, maybe Seattle, you know, reverts to form and they're like an expansion team and they do suck. Do you think it hurts them um, based on what happened with Vegas? Or do you think it's, people are, people will understand people will get it and, and they'll, they'll enjoy the traditional honeymoon period that expansion teams have and should have. Um, or do you think that the Vegas thing maybe, you know, puts, puts Seattle in a, in a tougher place to begin with?
3: Oh, I think it definitely puts them in a tougher place. Uh, I, I think you're, you know, the, uh, the harder core hockey fan. And I think there's quite a few of them in Seattle, which is why I think it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's tough. I, I, I think, Seattle starting off from a better place in terms of, of, uh, of a hockey base than Vegas did. Um, you know, whether, the, whether that translates into them having as much success as, as Vegas has had in terms of the, the support and, and the buzz in the community and everything else remains to be seen. But I, I think it definitely hurts them because I think even among the casual fans who maybe, uh, aren't huge hockey fans, but are excited about the, of, of, about the, uh, the fact that they're going to have another, you know, mostly winter, winter type sport in the, in the area. Uh, I think those casual fans are going to be thinking, uh, and not, and knowing the success that Vegas had right off of the bat and are going to be like, Oh, we're going to have a team. That's maybe got a chance to go to the Stanley cup final. And, and for the reasons that you guys have talked about, and you know, I think that's going to be a much, a much tougher, uh, a much tougher order for, uh, for Seattle than it was for, for Vegas. Um, I don't know if you guys have spent any time in, in Seattle, but I had the chance to go and and spend the better part of a couple of weeks there, because that's where the, uh, I covered the women's PGA championship there when Brooke Henderson, who's uh, uh, an LPGA player from Ottawa, uh, actually won at, uh, at Sahali. So I got, I got to spend a bunch of time in Seattle and I, you know, there has been rumors of Seattle for years, right. Of of them potentially being mm-hmm. an expansion franchise that, that time that I was in Seattle, um, all I could do was when I would go out and walk around downtown and stuff was think about what a fantastic place um, this would be for NHL hockey. I mean, just the uh, you know, the, the, uh, the trend, the city's on right now, they've got a lot of people there in different industries who have come from across North America so I think you got a lot of people who grew up in in places where uh, you know where, where hockey was important. Um, I think you could say the same kind of thing about Vegas, right? Everybody talks about how uh, how it's got people from all over North America working there in in the gambling industry and everything else. So I, I think in terms of a, a grassroots and having and having people who know the game and. And our fans of the game, I I think again they've picked a they picked a market where there's gonna be a pretty good base that wise. And I think that whole, you know, the Pacific Northwest building in uh the rivalry with the with the Canucks right off the bat and I'm sure uh rivalry will form with, with you know San Jose and probably with Calgary and, and Edmonton, everybody out there in that uh, in that area. Um I, I think this is Maybe not on the ice right off the bat in terms of of the success and the standings, but I think in terms of acceptance in the community and and uh, the reception that they're going to get, I I think Seattle's got a great opportunity to uh, to come close to what Vegas did in their inaugural year, and that's that's saying something.
0: Yeah. It's a great city. And I, I, I'm with you, Chris, I, I just think it's going to be it's going to be one of those places that and I think people will want to go there. Right. I mean, who doesn't you know, it's a beautiful city. So,
1: you know, yeah, it's, I, I get it's different, It's different from yep. Vegas.
0: Right. People. Will, but I think people will want to go to Seattle and see a hockey game because it'll yeah. be new and interesting. So I, I think there's that. Pierre, you uh, just before we, we close this out. Um, would your gut tell you that they hire a GM sooner than later? I mean, and we had Dave Tippett on the podcast a few, well, I guess probably a month ago where he broke the news that he wasn't interested and wasn't uh, planning to be the head coach in Seattle, that he would stay in the senior executive position with the organization. So you have a a, a top hockey mind already boots on the ground, but which does your gut tell you that they, they go sooner than later to hire a GM and between that new person and Dave Tippett, that they start to lay the groundwork for, for 21,
1: 22. Yeah, I think they do. The only way they don't, as, as it was explained to me this week, is whether the candidate that they ultimate uh, ultimately identify if he's not available until later. Right. I mean, I mean, so that's the one thing as, as someone from the salary group said to me, we don't want to miss out on the best possible candidate because we acted too fast. But yeah, having, having I said all that, here. yeah. So having said all that, um, as long as you know the person they want is available sometime starting with the window of the summer, I, I think they'll be ready to act. I don't think they'll look at the financial uh, cost of of getting a GM in place because I think they're going to need that much more time to prepare than. And Vegas did, um, but before we go, I, we we said we'd get a LeBreton Flats update, and we didn't. Oh yeah, and and, and I mean, <laughs> Wait, well, you said when you say we, that you meant me. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, but 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 I but I think uh, <laughs> because part of it, CJ, and it's it was difficult, even I think for the, those of us in the business. But unless you live in Ottawa, it's one of those, <laughs> it's one of those local stories that matters a lot league wide. But it, there's so many local ramifications to it. So I wonder if you could Cole, Cole's note the The situation yeah. as it is at this hour.
3: Yeah. So, um, for people who don't know, the Breton Flats is is this uh, area just west of of uh, Parliament Hill. Um, you know, it's it's probably some of the most prime real estate in Canada. To tell you the truth, uh, it's controlled by a, a group called the National Capital Commission, which oversees the federal lands around the capital. And uh, it's basically um, it used to be a little bit of an industrial area it's, it's uh, basically been open fields for the last 50 years. And the NCC finally decided the time was right to develop, like I said, this, this prime real estate on the cusp of, of downtown. Um, so basically a, a group led by Melnick, the Senator's owners and a group from Montreal were the, the two ones that the uh, two groups that stepped up to really bid on the opportunity to develop this land. And uh, after a, uh, you know, a rigorous uh, um, request for proposals and, and screening process, they chose NOMIC's group to uh, to move forward and, and negotiate a final deal to develop the land. Um, well, uh, that was two and a half years ago. We're two and a half years into the process, and uh, it basically all fell apart in uh, in the last, I'd say, two months with with Melnick and, and his partner, John Ruddy, who's one of the most respected developers, that might sound like an oxymoron, but one of the, the most respected respected developers in Ottawa, uh, he's a guy who was part of the group that redeveloped Lansdowne Park, which is you know where the, mm-hmm. the uh, Canadian Football League Stadium is downtown, and they did a magnificent job of reinvigorating uh, that neighborhood and, and refurbishing the stadium. Uh, it's been a, a crazy success, the, uh, the football team, the return of football. Um, so basically, we're at a point now where Melnick is is suing Ruddy because uh, Ruddy's developing a, another mega project, which is just outside of the boundaries of Le Breton Flats. And, and Melnick's accusing Ruddy of using um, basically insider information that arose out of their development of, of Le Breton um, to, to build this project. So Melnick's now suing Ruddy for 700 million, um, the NCC, um, you know, which for years has dragged his feet on this thing and is now fast-tracked it is pissed. Like you wouldn't believe that mm-hmm. the private sector now is, is holding the whole thing up, which now of course has opened the door for the Montreal group, which in, includes people like, uh, Andre Demer and the Demer family and power corp is one of the richest families in the world. And, Gilles Devalte, who was the founder of Cirque du Soleil, and uh, even some people from uh, from Ottawa, some some pretty powerful movers and shakers are part of that group as well. They stepped up and made it, you know, known to the NCC that they're more than willing to step in and, and begin the process of developing LeBreton Flats, and that they would leave a placeholder for an NHL rink, uh, basically leaving the door open that at least for the next few years they could start developing LeBreton Flats in terms of the retail and the residential and allow the whole NHL situation to kind of work itself out and still leave the option uh, for the team to be moved downtown. So you know, basically what everybody's waiting for now is to find out the future of Melnick's ownership. You know, is, is this super rich group from Montreal basically going to be able to make him an offer that he can't refuse right. to buy the senators, you know, even though he's been adamant every time he's asked to say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sell the, the senators, so I'm going to leave the team to my daughters and, and this kind of stuff. I think at some point somebody comes up with the number where Melnick is, is just not going to be able to turn it down. And um, I, I think that's going to be really interesting now to see, you know, if, and when the league gets involved in this, because I know Pierre, you were down there and, and that one was asked a question about the arena situation. And I believe the word he used was disappointed at, at the way things are, are are going right now. So I, I, think the league sees it the way you do that having the senators move downtown is, is, uh, you know, going to take the, the future of the franchise to another level here in Ottawa. So, you know, behind the scenes, it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of a role, uh, Gary Bettman and Bill Bailey can play in maybe trying to get this thing back on track. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Good point. And by, and by the way, should be noted that Eugene Melnick was not at the board of governors in sea Island, Georgia. Much to our disappointment, because obviously we were eager to get his yeah. take on all this. Yeah.
0: Well, and, the, yeah. and when you know the commissioner, uh, rarely is there a disparaging word said about any other, any owner or any situation vis-a-vis franchises and, and things like that. And so um, I think it's fair to say when he says he, he when it's disappointing, uh, that's uh, <laughs> times 10 or whatever behind closed doors uh, at yeah. the NHL offices. So and don't, mm-hmm. nothing, right.
3: and just like another, uh, another quick aside before we, we wrap up here. I mean, you know, don't forget the headaches that Eugene Melnick has given Gary Bettman over the last year. And I I go right back again to those comments at the outdoor game, right? Where mm-hmm. you know um, here is here was the the National Hockey League signature event for their centennial season to wrap it up with this this outdoor game between Montreal and Ottawa and you know commemorating the first game in the history of the National Hockey League. And the whole narrative through the whole weekend was was Eugene Melmick's comments from the Friday night. About, right. You know, this market doesn't support and and Gary Bettman and Bill Daly had to spend the Saturday and the Sunday when they should have been talking about what a spectacular event this was. They basically spent the time in, in the frigid temperatures having to put out the huge fire that Eugene Melnick had, had lit that weekend, which, you know, in, in uh, the days and weeks afterwards, I, I heard that Bettman would live it over that. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a history there already. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here on out.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Gentlemen, this has been a treat. Could go on all day, but Pierre's got a hockey tournament to get to in Alliston. Chris, you have been less than grumpy. You've been positive, positively effervescent, my friend. So thank you for getting up early and, and joining us on Two Man Advantage, uh, the podcast. So it was, a, it was a treat. So thanks very much, Chris. Appreciate
3: uh, it. I think the opportunity to reconnect with two of my favorite people in, in hockey was enough to overcome the grumpiness factor. Uh,
1: well, 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 and uh, and we went too long, so we didn't have time to go into one of the great road trips that uh, Chris and I worked together. We covered a national predators, then Phoenix Coyotes playoff series, and uh, had a fun night doing some karaoke. But anyway, that's the story for another day. We don't <laughs> next time, to- then next time. <laughs> All right. Well,
0: thank you so much, Chris. Bye-bye. All I will say is quiet, riot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Probably just about the right time to close this out. So, all right. Chris, thank you. Pierre, drive safely on the way to
1: Allison. Look for the potato signs. I'll be all over that. (laughs) All right. See you guys.